2 Corinthians 9. We're going to do the whole chapter this morning, but the bulk of it is going to be there in verse 6 down through verse 9. So if you'll join me there, I'll read. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And that's Psalm 112. So this is our third week talking about matters of giving and generosity and finances and money. And I promise you this will be the last week of that. Next week, we'll move on to chapter 10. We sort of turn a corner, really wonderful chapter, 2 Corinthians 10. We'll talk about strongholds, casting down strongholds and things like that. So that's next week. But for this week, we're finishing up this little section. Before I get to it, before we actually get into the word, I've enjoyed asking questions to you guys as we prepare and just get our minds wrapped around the topic at hand. So I have some questions for you guys this morning. Are you ready? Get your arms warmed up. I'm going to have some hand raising going on. So arms warmed up. I'm looking for some responses. So none of this is meant to be embarrassing, but just to show how we grew up and what our attitude, our approach toward money was as we were growing up. So question, how many of you grew up in a home where money was a big deal, either the lack of it or the abundance of it? How many of you grew up with a sense of financial security or of insecurity? How many of you have no idea or don't care? And notice there's people in the church that come from both sides of the coin. Some have grown up in very financially secure and stable families, or at least even if it wasn't, you didn't know. Maybe some homes were like that. And it's not till later on that you realize, wow, mom and dad weren't very financially secure, but they never talked about it in front of us. They never let on that things were tough. They just did what they had to do. How many of you growing up, did you ever hear arguments or fights about money in your household? A few. How many of you ever fought about money in your house? Yeah. Turns out money's a big deal in terms of marriage. Now it's like, I think Facebook is one of the primary causes for divorce, but for a long time, financial issues were a big cause that was spoken in terms of divorce. One more question, then we'll move on. How many of you would say that you saw generosity lived out in your home? Excellent. Excellent. That's a lot of folks that saw generosity lived out in the home. I ask these questions because we're reading about the Corinthians and we're reading about the church in Jerusalem, but we're learning about, and in the midst of this chapter, we're learning about God's attitude toward money, the attitude God wants us to have toward money and how we handle money and how we use money, how we spend money and how we give money and how we save money and just how we think about money altogether. And our goal is whatever way you grew up, if you grew up in a generous home, then you've got an easier transition to understanding how God thinks about money. We have a very generous God. He's been very gracious to us. And that's really where Paul started with this is Jesus became poor so that we could become rich. And the Macedonian church, the church in Northern Greece, they first gave themselves to the Lord. That was the key. You give yourself to the Lord and then money matters fall into place after that. Interestingly, a woman from our church, she was in the first service today and 
She told me I could share this story. She came up last week after the previous week's sermon. And I had mentioned, you know, there's always someone worse off than you and that you can always find someone to help because there's always someone worse off. And she's a person that is not real well off herself. She doesn't have a whole lot, lives sort of hand to mouth and that kind of thing. And she was moved by the sermon, by the passage. So she decided when she got home, she had this much in her cupboard, which wasn't much. And she didn't know where her next meal was going to come from, but she decided to give part of this to someone else that she knew that was in need. Just moved by God's word. So she did it and then said, oh, now what? And she'd had some coupons and some gift cards for food at Food Lion. And so she went and the gift card she tried to use was empty. And so there she was with the groceries going, oh, you're gonna have to put it all back, put it all back. And then the person in line said, let me pay for that. So she had all her groceries paid for. And then she got home and a couple more days go by. She gets a letter in the mail. She'd had some outstanding debt that she had owed. And she got a letter that her debt had been canceled. Now, you can't make this stuff up. You know, I'm preserving her confidentiality by not sharing her name. But if you want to hear more of her story, I'd be glad to introduce you to her. She goes to this church. And I'm sure she's not the only one that's experienced God's hand in our lives as we obey him, as we learn about his ways, his money ways, then we see his blessing in our lives. So chapter nine is an excellent chapter. We learned some really amazing principles about handling money, about giving generosity. And we learned about what God really wants. And it might be different than you have been taught. And it might be different than you have thought. So verse one begins with now concerning the ministering to the saints. It is superfluous. There's a word we use every day, isn't it? It is superfluous, it's redundant, it's extra for me to write to you. For I know your willingness. I know you guys are willing, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that's the people in northern Greece, that Achaia, that's the Corinthians in southern Greece, was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready." lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. As I was reading this passage a thought came to mind that brought a movie to mind. And I hope you recognize that sometimes I'll quote a famous line from a movie or something. That doesn't mean I'm endorsing the movie. Some of you are very familiar with the name Jerry Maguire. And uh, Tom Cruise played that character. He was a sports agent. And from that, we get the famous line. I was thinking you had me at hello, but show me the money. We've heard that line. We know that movie show me the money. And in a sense, why did that come to my mind? This is what Paul is saying, not with the same attitude as the movie, but what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is, show me the money. There was a year that had gone by since the Corinthians had pledged. Do you remember? They're taking a disaster relief fund from Greece to Israel. The church in Jerusalem is suffering under a famine, under a drought. The people there are in desperate need So Paul, wanting to facilitate oneness between Jew and Gentile, wanting to minister to his Jewish brethren, he gathers up the church in Greece and says, hey, I think we can help out the poor saints that are suffering in Jerusalem. What do you guys think? And the Corinthians, who were wealthy, 
said, absolutely, we're in. They were excited about it. They were pumped about it. They were zealous about it. They said, yes, we want to be part of this contribution. And then Paul went up to Northern Greece, the Macedonians. They weren't so wealthy. And he said to them, guess what? The Corinthians in the South, they are excited and feel really good about giving a large sum to this church in Jerusalem. And the Macedonians said, wow, they are. Well, we want to be part of that too. I mean, if they're doing it, we want to do it too. Now it comes time to take up the collection, but something has happened. The Corinthian excitement has not continued. (laughs) And now a year later, Paul has to send a contingency, a group, because it seems like they weren't ready to put their money where their mouth was. You know how that goes. You get excited, you get encouraged, you get zealous about a certain thing, and then time passes and all of a sudden the zeal is gone, but you still have to do the thing that you promised you would do. And notice Paul says in verse five that you had previously promised. That's the idea. Paul is walking a very, very fine line because they've made a promise. Now he's got to go back and say, okay, it's show me the money. It's time to pay up. But what he doesn't want to happen, he doesn't want to have to be forceful with them. He doesn't want to have to make it look like, well, the way he says it here, he wants it to be a matter of generosity and not a grudging obligation. Now, remember, he said, it's going to be embarrassing if this church from Macedonia, I was boasting all about you guys, and now we're going to come by, swing through Corinth to pick up the offering, and it's going to be embarrassing to you, and it's going to be embarrassing to me if it's not ready. Then I'm going to have to turn the screws a little bit to get you to do it, and I don't want to do that. And this is the heart of God. God is not interested in you serving him or giving or doing anything for him with a slave mentality, a grudging obligation. It's the word covetousness. It's the word greedy desire to have more. Paul doesn't want them to think is that as he comes there, he has a greedy desire to have more from them. That he's going to coerce them and manipulate them and squeeze them to give more. He doesn't want that. He wants it to be a free gift from their generosity that they had promised before. And I think you guys know the feeling, don't you? The feeling of being grudgingly beaten up into giving something you didn't want to give or doing something you didn't want to do. And you know, there's a completely different heart. When you do something with the right motive, it's a completely different attitude than when you do it with the wrong motive. You know that. Do you have kids? Anybody have children? I mean, imagine asking your child to empty the dishwasher and it not being like you've just asked them to stick their finger in a socket. Oh, really? I emptied that dishwasher. Why do I have to do that? And wouldn't it be great if you said, hey, could you empty the dishwasher? And they said, oh, dad... I would love to. It's the joy of my life. It's the greatest thing I could imagine. Empty the dishwasher for you. I would be honored. Let me get right to it. Is that what you experience? You're laughing. (laughs) If it wasn't for the ability for love to make suffering satisfying, we would never have children. You'll work that out on the way home. (laughs) So you know that when you say, hey, do this chore, and they do it, but the attitude is all wrong, How does that make you feel? It doesn't make it fun. It doesn't make it a good experience for anybody. So God's attitude is, look, if you don't want to do it, if you're going to do it with the wrong attitude, then it makes me, God would say, look like a slave driver. And that's not what I am. He set the Israelites free from slavery, not to bring the church into slavery. He doesn't want us to walk around grudgingly doing things for God. Oh, what are you doing? I'm doing it for God. I don't really want to. I don't really feel like it. I'm kind of mad about it. 
but I'm going to do it because it's right. And we grew up in a generation that said, just do it because it's right. How many of you grew up with parents that said, you just do it because it's right? You can do the right thing from the wrong heart. Maybe it works for your parents, but it doesn't work for God. Look, he says, therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, verse six, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Underline this, this is important. Not grudgingly or of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver. I'm so glad that that's in there. It doesn't say God loves a tither. It doesn't say that. It says God loves a cheerful giver. And Paul, again, is walking this really fine line because he does not want to misrepresent God's heart in the area of generosity and giving. So instead of doing that, what he says, I'm going to give you the principle and then you're going to have to make the choice. Once you know the principle, now you're going to be able to make an informed decision about how you use your resources. And the principle is easy. It's the principle of reaping and sowing. It's a farming. It's an agricultural principle. Planting and gathering. You put a seed in the ground. It grows into a plant. That plant has fruit. I always use tomatoes because that's really easy. And we all understand tomatoes. So you put that tomato seed in the ground. So the first thing you have to do is you can't be a Scrooge with it. I mean, imagine a farmer who was greedy. But all this seed, he said, I'm scared to plant it. What if I never see it again? What if it disappears? I need it. I mean, how am I going to live without it? Charles Dickens made the personality of Scrooge famous. You're all familiar with Scrooge, right? You couldn't pinch that guy and get a nickel out of him. Some of you know people like that. Do you know people like that? Whatever it is, they ain't giving away nothing. If you use the bathroom, put a quarter on the toilet. Especially if you live in the lake. That costs some money. (laughs) That's not in my notes, by the way. (laughs) Put a dollar on the toilet. Uh, But some people, just everything, it's all about money. And they just can't give away anything, can't part with anything. So you can do that. You can live that way. God is saying, look, if you want to live that way, you can live that way, but you have to know something. The farmer who gets one seed, let's say I gave everybody a seed, tomato seed. And some of us said, you know what? I just grew up with a greed mentality. I'm a hoarder. I can't let it go. I'm going to hold on to my seed. I'm going to put it on my countertop and I'm going to say, I have one more seed than I had yesterday. That's progress. But the person who understands reaping and sowing, he says, you know what? The only way that that seed can really do what it's meant to do is that I put it in the ground. I have to give it away for it to be useful. Put it in the ground and what comes up? Tomato plant. Tomato plant has what? Five, six, 12 tomatoes, however many. My tomato plant, one if I'm lucky. Maybe you're a better farmer than me. But even in that one tomato, how many seeds are in one tomato? You ever count? Hundreds maybe? I don't know. A couple hundred? So then with that tomato, you can then dry those seeds or you can eat the tomato. You can cut it in half. You can eat half of it. And you can take the seeds from the other half, dry them, and plant 50 seeds next year. And then you grow 50 plants. And those 50 plants have six tomatoes each. Multiply that, do the math. That's the law of reaping and sowing. So at harvest time, the person who was greedy or hoarding has still one seed. But the person who gave it away finds out that they get way more back. And it's God 
who designed the system. God who designed the system. So this is what you and I have. Paul could have said tithing. Paul could have said, do what you have to do. It's law. He gives them law, but not the law. He gives them a law, a natural law, the law of reaping and sowing. He who is presently sowing sparingly one or two seeds. Then in the future, that person, will they have much of a harvest? They'll have small, but not as much as the guy who was more generous with the seed. Look, the young folks in here need to know this too, because sometimes kids think, well, that's when I get older. If you're not generous when you're young, if you didn't learn generosity in your home, moms and dads, you're teaching financial principles to your children. You may not say it, but they watch. They learn to trust God with their finances from you until they establish their own. They see, do you invite people into your home? There's a lot of ways to be generous, not just giving away money. For us, just a blessing of inviting people in our home over the years, years and years and years. We've opened up our home to have people and they've stayed with us for a year. They've stayed with us for a night, hosting meals, being hospitable. That costs money. To serve a meal to somebody else costs money, doesn't it? And it's a way to be giving, a way to be sharing. Because you know that in the future, it's coming back. And it's not always, you don't always get back exactly what you planted. I know that's the kind of the law and nature of agriculture. But when it comes to God, my experience, and maybe it's been yours too, I've found out that sometimes I give away something here. It's a piece of equipment. Somebody needs to borrow it and they trash it. That ever happened to you? I've just learned that if I'm lending it to you, I expect never to see it again. Because then I'm not disappointed when it comes back, two tires are flat and the engine is busted. Well, it's the stuff. And people are more important than things. So you lend and you give and you use your resources to bless others. And I've just found out that sometimes it comes back in other ways. Somebody fixes a car for me. Somebody does this for me. Somebody does that. I'm blown away, blown away by the way God has blessed our lives. Have you experienced that too, some of you? Yeah, God has done that. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly in the future. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You get the principle. Now, Verse seven is kind of cool. So let each one give, because that's true, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's some really cool cross-references, if you like cross-references. Psalm 41, one to three. I'll give you three. How about that? You can just write them down, look them up later. Psalm 41, one to three says, blessed is he who considers the poor the Lord will deliver him in times of trouble. Proverbs 21, 13 says, whoever shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. Proverbs 13, 7 says, there is one who makes himself rich yet has nothing and one who makes himself poor yet has great riches. So when you understand God's law of reaping and sowing and you get to make a decision, you realize that, I don't always get back exactly what I gave out feeding the chickens this morning. I was feeding them some bread. We had corn and bread. Helga usually feeds the chickens this morning. It was me. And I'm realizing as I'm studying this passage going, you know, I could eat that bread myself. I could have toast and eggs. But the problem was if I didn't give away some of my bread, I'd have toast, no eggs. I'd have toast and dead chickens. So I give away some bread. The chickens appreciate it. And in return, they reward me with eggs. And I love eggs. And when you know this, when you get this worked into your heart, you got to go, okay, I got a decision to make. Do I want to reap bountifully or I want to sow bountifully? Do I want to reap bountifully or I want to reap sparingly? What kind of life do you want to have? 
not just materially. It's spiritually. It's emotionally. It's joy. It's blessing from God. God loves a cheerful, you know, if you studied your Bible, a hilarious. It's the Greek word where we get hilarious, joyful. God doesn't want to be misrepresented by you serving him with a slave mentality and a grudging heart. And then people around you go, wow, that God must be tough because he's really a slave driver. God says, you know what? If you can't give to me joyfully, then don't give. Instead, let's work on our relationship so you understand my faithfulness. So when you do give, you can do it joyfully. See, we've grown up in a world and a church world that says, doesn't really matter how you feel about it, just do it. But I see over and over again, God says, it really does matter how you feel. The motive of your heart will influence the emotional content of your life as you obey. So the important thing is obedience with the right heart and with the right emotion. Imagine being a cheerful giver. I would love to just take and put a video camera on the offering box and just watch people come up. Oh, this is great. I get to give like the kids with a dishwasher. Oh, this is great. Don't you love it when your kids do that? When they just obey you with joy? How often does that happen? Not often enough, but it changes the experience, doesn't it? But when I see people doing what they think they're supposed to do and they just look all sour about it, I'm like, forget it. If you want to do it for me, then do it. But if you're going to be sour about it, then forget it. Don't do it. I don't need it. Do you know what I'm saying? And God feels the same way. If you're going to do it and be sour about it, you're not doing me any favors. I don't need your money. God's not poor. It's for you. God's teaching us. He's showing us. And verse eight, and God is able to make all grace. He uses the word grace over and over again. All things that bring joy, all grace abound to you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, and he quotes Psalm 112, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Someone tipped me off to it. I'll quote it for you. It was in Forbes magazine. I think you could find the article anyplace. Tony Bennett, the UVA basketball coach. Any UVA basketball fans in here? All right. Tony Bennett, now, of course, world famous, at least nationally famous because of the UVA victory. He's obviously had an extension of his contract with UVA. They'd be foolish not to. But they also offered him a raise which he subsequently declined. Who does that? So Tony Bennett, he said, I have more than enough. And if there are ways that this can help out the athletic department, the other programs and coaches by not tying up so much in men's basketball, that's my desire. So you know what? We've got enough. Now he makes 4.15 million a year. And he's a believer. He's a believer. So I think he's right when he says, you're right, you've got enough. But there are a lot of people in the world that would willingly accept a raise. Oh, you want to give me more? I mean, I looked up just by comparison, Jeff Bezos. He's the uh, CEO for who? Amazon. Is that right? Amazon. He's worth a piddly $150 billion. Now, I don't know how much he gives away. I'm thinking this guy could give away way more than 10%. If he can't live on $1.5 billion, give away 90%, right? Check my math later on. Not a math guy. He could sow a lot more. I mean, you got 150 billion, you can sow a lot of seed. Just by comparison, he's earned $6.54 billion a month 
which is more than $1.5 billion a week and more than $250 million a day in the last 12 months. How many of you make that in a week? Anybody here make $1.5 billion a week? I'll tell you about a little building project we got going on. <laughs> so when Bill Gates, he's only at $100 billion, so when he needs a loan, he asks Bezos, hey, can you spot me a couple billion, you know? But we laugh about that because it's so ridiculous, right? The disparity is so ridiculous. You've got Jeff Bezos, $150 billion, and we go, wow, that's amazing. Then we've got our UVA basketball coach, Tony Bennett. He's at $4.15 million, which still looks pretty good to us. Some of us are 20000 30000 a year, 40000 50000 But people look at us in other parts of the world, they make a dollar a day. If that, 50 cents a day, sweating it out. They look at us, they say, you guys are the wealthiest nation on earth. But when we look at ourselves, we say, oh, you know, I need more. I need more. And what happens with Paul is he says that what God does is he says, verse eight, God is able. God is able. When I'm generous, it doesn't come back from the people I've been generous to typically. Sometimes it does, but it's God. God is able. He's the rewarder and he can make all of his grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency. I like that. The word all sufficiency doesn't mean that I have more. It means that I need less. It really means to be self-satisfied or content. What God produces in a human heart is contentment through generosity. That's what he does. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau, these two brothers estranged for 20 years because Jacob stole Esau's blessing and Jacob has to run for his life because Esau is a hothead and he's coming after him. So Jacob runs for his life. They don't see each other. 20 years passes. Now they both have families. Jacob's got a bunch of kids and he finds out Esau's coming to meet him after 20 years and he's fearful thinking, oh man, maybe he's still holding a grudge after 20 years. Maybe he's still gonna try to come and kill me. And so he breaks up his family into little parties and he sends a few before and then a few more after that, a few more after that, some gifts for his brother Esau trying to kind of smooth him over a little bit. And then finally Jacob comes and he bows himself down to his brother Esau. He's just trying not to get killed. And Esau says, what do you mean by sending me all this stuff? And Jacob says, well, just trying to make nice, nice with you. He doesn't say that in the Bible. That's my translation. And Esau says, I don't need this stuff. I have enough. Like Esau had come into his own and he says, I have enough. And then Jacob said, oh no, you've got to take it. God has been so gracious to me. Please, you must take it. Sounds like two people when they go out for lunch, they argue about who gets to pay. So they're kind of arguing about who gets to pay. And Jacob says, no, no, you take it because I have, and it translates it enough in the Bible, but your margin might say, I have it all. I have all. So two different really responses. Esau says, I have enough. Jacob says, God has been gracious. I have everything. And I think that's the attitude that believers should have. It's not just material. We have blessings in the spiritual places. God has blessed our lives in ways that go beyond material. He's blessed our hearts. You know, I wonder how much money is spent in people's lives to try to solve a spiritual problem with a material solution. The big questions of life, you can't throw money at. Who am I? I'm not the little horse on my shirt or the insignia on my car. That's not who I am. But people spend money because they think that's who they are. Am I valuable? If I have more, I'm more valuable than the next guy. 
So I spend money to have more, to be more valuable. How can I be truly happy? Big question. It ain't going to be through money. What is my purpose in life? Is my purpose in life to be wealthy? What is my purpose? These are things that Americans largely have tried to answer materially. People have tried to answer materially, but these are spiritual questions. And I found, maybe you found, that when those big questions get answered spiritually, all of a sudden, my needs change. All of a sudden, I don't need the things I used to need because I know who I am. All of a sudden, I don't need what I used to need because I'm content. I'm not trying to prove anything to anybody. I'm not trying to be something to somebody. Jesus knows where he came from, knows where he's going to, and he bows down, takes off his garment, and he washes feet. Contentment. And that's what Paul is saying, that we can be given all sufficiency. I look at our lives as a church. Some of you guys know, you want to go on retreat and you can't afford it, we'll take care of it. You need a book, you can't afford it, we'll take care of it. We never try to make a buck off of God's people. And God has blessed us so much. Just the life of our church, 15% of what comes in goes out. I'd love to make it 20. Working toward that. And look around. No passing an offering plate. No membership. No building fund. No schemes. No scams. And God has provided. Because God is able. We live like that personally. We live like that as a church. This is a fascinating passage to me. The two things that he gives us He gives us contentment, but look what else he gives us. He gives us empowerment. The generosity perpetuates the ability to be more generous. Look at verse 10. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Far from God wanting to twist your arm, which is really to be sad and to twist your arm is what Paul said in the previous verse from sorrow and grudgingly. It means to twist the arm. That's not how God wants you to give. He wants you to understand these principles. Again, God gives us contentment and he also gives us empowerment. He who supplies, that's God. Who supplies seed? It's God that did that. God developed the whole system that fruit would have seed in it and the seed would have the life in it and you bury it in the ground, and it brings more life. That's crazy. That's awesome. And that he who supplies seed to the sower will also provide bread for food. So if I give it away, my fear is if I give away, I won't have for me. But God says, you watch, you need to be more like a conduit, like a pipe than a sponge. A sponge mentality says, whatever God gives me, I keep. A pipe mentality says, whatever God gives me, I pass it through on to other people who need it. And without it ever affecting or being absorbed by me. God promises to take care of the needs that we have. Think about the disciples feeding the 5,000. You remember that story? All these people have gathered around. They're all hungry. And the guys say, hey, send them home. Let them go eat at their house. And Jesus says, no, you guys feed them. What? We feed them. We don't have anything to feed them with. We got nothing. Well, take up a collection. So they take up a collection. And what do they find? What do they have? Five loaves and two little fishes, two little sardines, five biscuits, and two sardines, and 5,000 people. And they say, this is never going to work. Jesus says, well, just give it to me. Notice, give it to me. And then he begins to break it and multiply it. Do you know that feeling at the end of the month? Do you remember the feeling of at the end of the month going, where did it all go? 
When you begin to serve God, even with your finances, when you begin to adopt that understanding, at the end of the month, you go, how do I still have anything left? Like I put something in the offering plate. I helped out someone in need and I still have money left. It's amazing. So they give it to him. He breaks it, hands it out. And then he says, now go distribute it to all these people. They gorge themselves. That's what the Bible says. They gorge themselves. And what's left over at the end? Baskets full. God was showing them the principle of dependency, and they were able to start the first Wonder Bread distribution company in the world. (laughs) Wonder Bread. He empowers us when we trust him, and then he can trust us. I like that. Supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality. God makes you able to be more generous than you were last year. And the ultimate is it causes thanksgiving to God. Now, the last 12, 13, 14, 15, these last verses show us four tremendous benefits when people are generous to one another. For the administration of this service, this taking this collection to Jerusalem, not only supplies the needs of the saints, that's number one. It supplies the needs of the saints. That when that money shows up, people are going to be relieved. Have you ever been able to be an answer to somebody's prayer? You saw it happen. Like somebody's praying, oh God, help, we're in trouble. There's no money. There's no food. We don't know what we're going to do. And God puts them on your mind. And you send them a gift card to Food Lion or you do something like that. And and they just say, you know what? That came at just the right time. Every year, there's a guy in the church. His sister lives in another state, doesn't go to church here. But every year, sends us a gift card for Pastor Appreciation Week. Usually it's a Starbucks gift card. $5. She doesn't have a lot of money, but she appreciates and she thinks and she sends a card and I send her a thank you, but it blows me away when I get that because I know she doesn't have much. And every year she remembers me at Pastor Appreciation Week. No, no, no. I'm not saying it because I'm somehow wanting you to remember me at Pastor Appreciation Week. I'm just saying it because I needed coffee at that moment. And the Starbucks gift card shows up. It's just a blessing. So you can be an answer to somebody else's prayer. You can meet somebody's need, even out of your lack, like our example from the beginning. Look at the next one, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. When people are generous, people thank God. People are thankful to God for what he's done. God gets the glory. That's another benefit. Look at verse 13. While through the proof of this ministry... They glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. So the people that receive the benefit, receive the gift, receive the help, they glorify God because you've shown that you really believe what you say you believe. The obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. When you're generous, it shows that you really believe what you say you believe about God. That he has put in us a generous spirit. And verse 14, and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. They may not be able to repay you financially, but they can pray for you. Anybody can pray. So I say, if you've been helped by Calvary Chapel, pray for the church. If you've been helped by me personally, if you've been helped by somebody else personally, pray for them. You can ask God to bless them. And notice the final benefit as well, relationship who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. So now there's a group of people in Jerusalem that have a whole different relationship 
have a whole different relationship with the people in Greece because there's been an exchange of help in the form of money. And Paul ends by saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Oh, he's just praising the Lord. What kind of gift, what gift do you think he's talking about? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Is he talking about the gift of generosity that's going to Jerusalem? Maybe. Is he talking about the gift of salvation? Maybe. Is he talking about the gift of making, taking people, giving people? Maybe. Maybe all of them. But I'm sure we can thank God for a pretty indescribable gift that he's given us, can't we?